about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, 
and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Reading on from chapter 4, verses 4 to 8. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. And just to cap it off. Chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes, verses 1 to 6. Be generous, and some day you will be rewarded. Share what you have with seven or eight others, because you never know when disaster may strike. Rain clouds always bring rain. Trees always stay wherever they fall. If you worry about the weather and don't plant seeds, you won't harvest a crop. No one can explain how a baby breathes before it is born. So how can anyone explain what God does? After all, he created everything. Plant your seeds early in the morning and keep working in the field until dark. Who knows? Your work might pay off and your seeds might produce. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, I'm Liz. The next Bible reading is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 25. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favouritism. Hello again, friends. We are in the second last week of our look at Ecclesiastes, and we have been saying all the way through uh, that we would collect together the passages about work and kind of uh, mush them and see what Ecclesiastes as a whole has to say to us as people who go to work and are working. Now, let me just make sure you don't check out at the beginning. If you're someone who's thinking, man, I'm still studying or, man, I'm out of work. I don't really want to think about work right now. Or you might be really dreading tomorrow and really concerned about that. Whatever you have today, can you just hold it in your hands as we walk through these texts together? Uh, Ecclesiastes uh, starts in chapter 1 by looking at all the toil that happens under the sun and questioning all of it. And so whatever your toil is, whether that is in study, whether that is just at your, in your home at the moment, 
ordering things. Whether that's long days or short days, part-time or full-time, whatever it is, God is interested in that this evening. He wants to speak into that uh, with Ecclesiastes. So stay with us with whatever the Lord has for you at the moment. But I wanted to start by showing you this article uh, that was, came big last year from Derek Thompson in The Atlantic. Uh, and he, he coined this term that's been thrown around since called workism. Uh, and he suggested that there is an emerging generation of Americans, I'm not sure about Australians, so I'm just going to keep it for what he said it was, uh, Americans who are starting to form a religious identity out of their work, out of their labor, out of their nine to five. Workism is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. He goes on to talk about how it's a growth out of this idea that we should all follow our passions. And we need to discover this one thing that our life is about. That story that we've been grown up with through Disney kind of looks like this. And millennials in particular aren't going to church to find meaning. They're going to work to find meaning in America. There's been a shift over the last hundred years when it comes to work. Uh, we used to think, call uh, what we did uh, jobs, and we did them because they were necessary. Then we started calling them careers because we did a bunch of jobs to get to a level of status and significance. But now we've moved to a place where we want to find our calling, which is all about meaning. And so in America, over the last hundred years, there's been this slow creep and increase in the significance of work and its spiritual importance to us as people. Now, no matter where you are this evening, this is a crushing idea. If you're out of work, it tells you you don't have worth, basically, doesn't it? Uh, For us grappling with our careers, it calls into question where we're up to, all kinds of things. Now, as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see that there's a whole other way to think about work and that this really, this idea doesn't really work at all. And what I want you to be open to this evening is the reality that you might have been co-opted by your culture to invest too much spiritual significance in your work. And you might need to allow the teacher to lead you out from under that in a little bit this evening. So I've got four things from the teacher about our toilsome labors and what to do about them. And the first thing we see from the teacher in chapter 2 is that if we define ourselves by what we do, it will fail us. If we define ourselves by what we do, it will fail us. Chapter 2 is that great chapter where the teacher goes on an, uh, an adventure to find what could be meaningful and significant in life, and he does all kinds of things with uh, food and pleasure and projects and all kinds of bits. And, and at one point in the chapter, he starts talking about work. And as Alex said, it's such an upper. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. And in particular, what he goes on to say is how you can spend an entire life laboring. You know, you could do it with wisdom and knowledge and skill in verse 21, and you can accumulate great things, but then when you die, you don't know whether someone wise or foolish will take them over, in verse 19, or the fact that you'll have to leave what you made 
to someone else. In the end, he says, what do people get for all their toil and their anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain, and even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. The teacher is far from what our culture suggests about work, isn't it? Here's the cold, hard reality. Work is painful, anxiety-ridden, grievous, and often just utterly disappointing. Uh, It's far from a place of transcendent spiritual height. And really what uh, the teacher is getting at here is really he has a Genesis 3 vision of work. In Genesis 3, uh, Adam and his work are cursed by God because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And God says, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. That's what work will be in our world after the curse of sin. Painful, difficult, and fruitless. And that's our experience of work often, the mundanity of it, the the difficulty of it, the frustrations of it. It's far from what might be suggested. And so the teacher gets to this point of his adventure around meaning and says, if you want to hang your hat on work, boy, you're going to be disappointed. If the spiritual centerpiece of your life is what you do, it will fail you. You will end up with nothing. The reality of work just doesn't meet up to the promises of work that our culture gives to us. Now you might be thinking, well Matt, I've been a Christian for a while and I know very well that I'm not supposed to gain all my identity from my work. I know I'm supposed to get my identity from Jesus, which is a great thought you have in your head. But if you're honest with yourself for a moment, how far down the rabbit hole of our culture are you? How much of your sense of self is tied up with your work? Derek Thompson has this great uh, confessional moment in the middle of his article where he talks about his job as a writer and how he swallowed workism whole. He said, I'm devoted to my job. I feel most myself when I'm fulfilled by my work, including the work of writing an essay about work, ironically. My sense of identity is so bound up in my job, my sense of accomplishment, and my feeling of productivity that bouts of writer's block can send me into an existential funk that can spill over into every part of my life. And I know enough writers, tech workers, marketers, artists, and entrepreneurs to know that my affliction is common. You see, here's the tell. When you have a bad day at work, what happens? How far down do you go? How much does it spill over into the way you relate to people that night and the morning after? How much of a dark cloud hangs over you and for how long? Because it's when this type of thing happens that will really reveal for you actually how much significance for you you place in what you do and what you have in front of you and what you've accomplished. And friend, be honest with yourself tonight. How far down the rabbit hole are you? But the teacher doesn't stop there. 
We'll come back to that a bit later. But he doesn't stop there. In chapter 4, he has some really interesting things to say about drive as well. And in fact, through the whole book, he has a really interesting picture of motivation and the drivenness of people around work. And his reflection, I would summarize, is this, that we are often, with work, needlessly driven and restless. We are often needlessly driven and restless. You see this in chapter 4, verse 4, where he starts looking at a few different uh, ways that we're motivated to work and the craziness of it. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. Teacher looks around at life and says, Everyone is doing stuff because they're looking at other people doing stuff and they want to do stuff the way they see them doing stuff. What? How does that make sense? How does it make sense to be jealous of someone else's job and then work harder at something that's going to be grievous and painful and give you nothing in the end? But how easy is that? I'm, I'm so convicted by this verse as a pastor, to be honest, because there are so many great churches in this city doing so many great things, and it's so easy for me to look at another person's ministry and go, that is so good. How come I'm not doing that? How come I'm not achieving that? How come God's not doing that through me? Maybe I need to do something different. I'm driven to do more ministry, not out of a love and worship of God and his gospel, but out of jealousy and envy. That's needlessly driven and restless. The teacher says, you know, the fool folds their hands and ruins themselves. Proverbs says a lot about that. So don't do nothing, but better one hand with tranquility than two hands filled with toil. Don't needlessly uh, go after things you don't need to. Have a little bit of restraint. You don't need to just run after life out of jealousy and envy for no reason at all. He goes on. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Someone was driven to keep working even though they didn't need more money for anyone or anything or any purpose. Needlessly driven. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. The teacher pictures someone who's just working because he's working because he's working because he's working. And the idea is that it's at the expense of even enjoying life. At the expense of relationship is kind of implied as well that he goes on to talk about the need for relationship in the verses that follow. That's what, often what happens to us. We get jammed up and we get excited about work. We work because we work because we work because we work and then we, cost, we kind of leave some really good thing that God's given us to the side, like our friends or our relationships, and something gets crushed. But part of workism, part of its core, part of this emerging spirituality of work is this driven love of productivity and this needless drivenness. And there are patron saints of this way of uh, Thinking. Elon Musk is maybe one of the chief saints. This is a really famous Twitter conversation from 2018 where he's uh, telling people to come work for Tesla. And, but he has an admission. There are easier places to work. Uh, but nobody ever changed the world in 40 hours a week. But if you love what you do, it mostly doesn't feel like work. Then the cracking question, what's the correct number of hours a week to change the world? 
Well, it varies per person, but about 80 sustained, peaking above 100 at times, pain level increases exponentially above 80. Well, how about Melissa Mayer, ex-CEO of Yahoo, when she was working at Google? Could you work 130 hours in a week? Well, the answer is yes, if you're strategic about when you sleep and when you shower and how often you go to the bathroom. The nap rooms at Google were there because it was safer to stay in the office than walk to your car at 3 a.m. Patron saints of what? Of what? Why, why, why more hours is better? This needless drivenness to get more done more efficiently, more quickly. For what? These are just the tip of the iceberg of something that's dripped through our entire culture. This needless, restless drivenness. For what? The teacher says. To what end and for what purpose? Better one hand with tranquility than two hands with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, what do you do if, if you're that person? What if you do, if you're stuck in that place of productivity overdrive? Well, you might need to consider what's actually driving you. What's actually pushing you to that place? He suggests uh, envy, money. There's different things that can drive us there. But maybe a, a good question to ask is, not how do I balance my life up. I don't think work-life balance is a helpful phrase. Maybe it's better to ask, what am I failing to be faithful to because of the way I'm working? What would God have me be more faithful to and not just my work? How can I be faithful to everything in my life? Maybe your work is meaning that you aren't investing in the friends that God has put in your life. Maybe it means that you're sacrificing the relationships you have with your family. Maybe you're sacrificing your relationship with God and a fundamental faithfulness to Him. Maybe you're disconnected from your city, from the environment. What, what faithfulness are you throwing under the bus of your overproductivity? God doesn't just summon you to be faithful to work. He summons you to be faithful to everything and everyone in your life. How might you be better faithful to everything and in everything? We are so often needlessly driven and restless. But the third thing we see, and this, I, I think the teacher has something positive to say about work. This is the most positive he gets, I think. And I think people read uh, chapter 11 too negatively. I'm reading commentators. I don't think they read it right. Because I think it's quite positive. Negative, but positive. Uh, the teacher, I think, says in chapter 11... Have a crack, because you never know. Have a crack, because you never know. I've been loving that people have been different translations across the day in church, because uh, this chapter is translated really differently. The classic translation of 11 verse 1 is, cast your bread upon the waters. Beautiful poetic phrase, which is about uh, investing in mercantile trade in kind of sending produce across the seas and seeing what comes back. It's backed up with, you know, invest in seven ventures, yes, eight, because you don't know what disaster will come upon the land. You don't know what's coming. So shore up what you have. 
you know, if clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. And when a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where it falls, there it will lie. The rainwaters will come. Things will happen that can't be undone. And you can't predict when they're going to happen. You have no ability to control your life, what is coming, what will happen, in what order, and at what time. In verse 5, as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. You don't know what God will do in your life. You don't know what God will do in uh, our world. Did you think he was going to do what happened this year? You don't know what's going to happen. And what's his solution to that? With this, this God who's doing things and we don't fully know, well, what do you do? Well, sow your seed in the evening. In the morning, and at evening, let your hands not be idle. You don't know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. What's he saying? You have no control over what God will do in life. So that should drive you to diversify your portfolio, to have a crack. Because you don't know whether the thing you invested everything in will succeed or not. Why not just try multiple things? Why not have a side hustle? Maybe this is a side hustle chapter in Scripture. And I think for us as Christians, the other side of the Lord Jesus, this is even amped up. You know, the work of God is not unknown to us. We have seen the work of God finished in Jesus. We have seen the work of God revealed. We have seen Jesus dead on the cross and raised to life again, redeeming the life of the whole world. We have seen the only work that a human has done that will spiritually define everything. And his work makes all of our work insignificant. We could rest from our work and rest in his. And that would give us a spiritual significance and identity that none of our endeavors or our toil will ever give us. We have seen the work of God unveiled and fulfilled in the person of Christ the Son. But you know what? I think that amps up this point, doesn't decrease it. Because if you know, if you have seen the work of God finished and done, if everything is settled and, and, and complete, then you have nothing to lose. And why not just, not just take risks, but take risks for the sake of the person you know the whole universe belongs to? Taking risks for Jesus for his gospel, for his name, for, for the sake of his purposes. The last time I preached on Ecclesiastes 11, I was a student minister over near Manly, a beautiful church that Cass and I loved being at for a number of years. It was near um, New Year's Eve, either just before or just after, and I preached a sermon on taking risks for Jesus from Ecclesiastes 11. And, you know, as what happens after most sermons is you sit down and you don't, you don't know anything that's happened and you assume that something happened but not much. Um, but then a few years later, I get a card in the mail from this beautiful uh, old saint uh, from that church. Uh, she was a widow. And she said, Matt, do you remember that sermon you preached on Ecclesiastes 11 just around New Year that year? Well, here's what, here's what happened. Uh, I walked into the sermon just contemplating whether to buy the property across the road from me. I've been thinking about it for a while. And I listened to your sermon and decided to buy the property and take a risk. I'm really terrified. 
Uh, and she said, you know, it worked out really well. I rented it out for a while, and I've just sold it because it was time, and I made a lot of money. And here's a check for part of it, which I've never cashed, by the way, never cashed. Um, and let me tell you that uh, a beautiful old Christian woman who sends ex-student ministers checks in the mail is spending her money on the gospel left, right, and center. Uh, you know, she took a risk on a property not to shore up her life, but to spend money on Jesus, to spend money on his purposes, to spend money on who he is. She didn't know whether she was going to make money from it. It was a risk, but she did it for Jesus. She had a crack because you never know. And when the finished work of God is on display in Jesus, we are free to have cracks with our work, with the ventures of our life, with the things Christ has put before us, and all the more so for things that bring glory and honor and praise to his name. We can have a crack because you never know. But at at the end of the day, this is my last point, is that the, the teacher doesn't leave us with enough answers around work. He leaves us with good questions about our identity and about our drive and about whether we take risks or whether we should or we shouldn't. But the most clear thing he says in multiple places in the book, he says it in chapter 2, is that we should find satisfaction in our toil. Literally find our soul well in it. Find, find good in it. Find something to enjoy in it that we should just settle for what's in front of us rather than searching for more and bigger things and trying to get big stuff out of it. Just settle and be satisfied and enjoy it. But boy, is that hard. When work is so weird and difficult and disappointing and strange and we lose it and we get it and who knows. How do we actually find that satisfaction that the teacher is telling us that we can? Well, here's where I think Colossians helps us. And Paul's word to some slaves in Colossae, slaves in the ancient world. Can you imagine someone with less significant work to do? Everything they do, every, every labor they do is for someone else. They will not get an inheritance from it. They will not get something significant from it. They're not gonna, there's no fulfillment in it. It's menial. Their, their master might be cruel and beat them. You know, they have less autonomy It's not modern slavery, but ancient slavery was not the best thing going around. It was meaningful and toilsome. And yet, what what does Paul say to these slaves? He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Literally, as like slaving for him, not for human masters. See, to these slaves in Colossae who are, who are just like over their boss and their work and everything happening, he says, do you know what this menial stuff that's in your hands, Jesus wants it. No matter how lacking in value you think it is, no matter how menial, no matter how frustrating, the Lord for whom everything was made for, we said that earlier in our service, wants whatever you have offered back as worship. Whatever you have, whether it's the menial chores in your day, the most toilsome labor I have at the moment is changing nappies at 3 a.m., trying to not get weed on. You know, 
that's a moment to be offered back to Jesus as worship. All of life is to be offered back to Jesus as worship, which means doing it in a way that is worthy of him, that makes him look great, that looks like him, that he would be glorified with. It's about holding in the hand the things of our life and saying, what would this look like if I was offering it as a worthy sacrifice back to the Lord who bought me? You see, when you attack life in that way, where everything can be worshipped, where everything can be offered back, you don't need to find transcendence and significance in your task. You find it in Him. And we are satisfied, and satisfaction comes from making our work about Him. Let's pray. Father, we do want to pray today that you would strip back the parts of us that are needlessly and have been captured by the vision of our culture that who we are and what we need is spiritually found in our work and our identity is there. Father, what a lie. Some of us are needlessly driven in the room tonight, Lord. Just productivity, you know, for no reason. And some of us are holding back from taking risks that we could take in your name. And Father, all we really want this evening is to be like a slave in Colossae, with not even significant work in front of us, but just enough to offer back as worship, to offer back in thankful praise to you who gave it to us, to you whom it is for. And we pray this in your name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.